Well, kids, first and foremost, do we have any kids out here? Where are the kids? Raise your hands for me. Got a couple of you. All right, all right. Um, my question to you today is about shepherds. Does anybody know and can tell me what a shepherd is? Yes. Awesome. You know what he's holding down with his other hand? Yes, but what does it do? You know why it's curved like that on top? Anybody else know why it would be curved like that? Yes. Yes, you can grab them with a stick and bring them back. Absolutely. So shepherds are kind of like protectors of the sheep, right? You sort of have to guard them and keep them from wolves or bears or anything else that might come and try to eat them, right? Now, here's my little story for you guys. Kids, did you know that I was once a shepherd? I did. In high school, I worked for a little bit on a sheep farm. And we didn't have staffs like that. So what we had to do, if a sheep got out of its cow or shouldn't be, we had to actually tackle it. <laughs> I was doing that. As a high school boy, that was a much more fun way for me to do that than to have a hook. It's a great way to go over a break. I'll say that. Um, so this morning, we're going to be talking about how... This morning, we're going to be talking about how Paul is kind of like a shepherd. Paul is trying to protect the flock of the church of Rome here at the end of the book of Romans. He is his most pastoral here when he comes to the end of this book. And so as you're listening, kids, look, listen for ways that Paul is like a shepherd, trying to guard and protect and guide the flock of the church at Rome. As I just said, church, this morning we are talking about the last chapter in the book of Romans. We have finished Romans. We made it. You can pat yourself on the back. We started this all the way back in July. So maybe today is a good day to celebrate the completion of this massive book of the Bible. And maybe, maybe you can have two desserts uh, this evening in celebration. So this morning we're talking about conclusions. We've come to the end of our series in Romans, and so we're asking the question, how is Paul going to wrap this thing up? 16 chapters of content, and now we're at the end. And we've looked at this book of the Bible for so long, it may be easy for us to forget that this began as a letter. It would have been read and listened to straight through the first time it was read in church. And what that means is that there are arguments and through lines in this letter that stretch all the way back to Romans 1. And so Romans 16 is completing or at least summarizing thoughts that we talked about all the way back in July. And that's why one of the things I encourage people to do at times is just to sit with epistles and read through them straight if you have the time. Because you can start to see how arguments and elements run through the whole thing. And they rise to the surface. It's different than how we might normally think about reading scripture. When you read it verse by verse and kind of take it apart. Um, But it would have been the way they first interacted with this text in the early church. So, what goes into a good conclusion? I remember hating writing conclusions to papers in college. And that part, part of that might have been because I was writing them 10 minutes before the paper was due at like 11.50 at night. 
Um, but I also think part of it was because it felt like I was just repeating myself. Like you get to the conclusion and you have to kind of say everything you just said again in a new and more succinct way. But that's also no different than Paul's letters in Scripture. When we come to the conclusion, what we find is often a succinct summary of where he has just been in the letter. A smaller book might help us see this more clearly. So let's take Galatians. Uh, In Galatians, Paul is trying to sort out a dispute about the role of the law, more specifically a discussion on the role of circumcision. Was it necessary for Gentile Christians to be circumcised? So after six chapters of describing how the gospel frees us from these ritual requirements of the law, Paul says this in his conclusion. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. If you're looking for a quick summary of Galatians, I can't think of a much better one than that. So following that same logic, what do we see here in Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 16. So if you turn your Bibles there, we're going to start in verse 17, which is the first verse that was read this morning. Here's what verse 17 says. And this is what I think is a succinct summary of one of at least Paul's main ideas throughout the whole book of Romans. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. If you remember as far back as July, one of the things we said that was animating Paul's writing of this letter was concerns about the unity of the Roman church as Jewish and Gentile Christians worshipped together again for the first time in around five years after the Jewish community returned from exile. The book of Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, flowed from Paul's pastoral or shepherding heart. A desire for the gospel to be what united these very different people. And so we come back to this center of that pastoral heart here at the end, but this time Paul issues a warning. This is his final appeal to the gospel unified church in Rome. Watch out for those who would seek to divide you. Be wise about what is good Ignorant about what is evil, stick to the faith received. You see, Paul understands the tenuous situation the early church is in and how easy it is for it to be once again split across those ethnic lines. Jewish Christians over here, Gentile Christians over there. Paul is worried that the foundation of unity in Christ that he's laid out in all this book will fall apart. That his new humanity where we have all the same verdict under sin and the same undeserved grace will splinter and fracture once again. Paul wants to keep the beauty of Psalm 33, or Psalm 133 rather, alive in the church at Rome. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live in unity. Paul wants to take that same position that Jesus did in our gospel reading this morning towards those who would seek to use the church for their own purposes, those who might cause a little one to stumble. Paul's a shepherd, pointing his flock away from wolves. Avoid them. Watch out. Don't go in that direction. I believe that same temptation exists for us today. And the same opportunity to experience that beautiful, pleasant unity described in Psalm 133. 
In a culture of loneliness and isolation, suspicion and anger, it is easy for us to withdraw and difficult for us to extend a hand in vulnerability. But if our model is the church at Rome, that is what we are called to do, because that is what the church at Rome did in its own way. We didn't read it this morning, but if you have your Bible, look above verse 17 into verses 1 through 16 in the chapter. What you find is a long list of names. This is probably one of the easiest things to skim over in a Bible reading. Names or numbers. But faithful readers of Scripture, going all the way back to the early church, have told us to pay attention to these long lists. They might have something to teach us. There are about 27 names listed in verse 1 through 16, and a few others are listed tangentially. Glancing at this list, someone with knowledge of the first century world will tell you of the great diversity represented in Paul's greetings. Seven women are mentioned directly, and one or two or more are mentioned indirectly. There are names that suggest a Jewish heritage and those that suggest a Gentile one. There are class distinctions, with some names indicating a background of wealth, while others a background of slavery or poverty. Some are greeted as if they have a stronger relationship to Paul than others. Some are old, having what seems to be adult children. Some are said to have whole households. Two are described as prisoners, suggesting that they have at least spent some, some time imprisoned for their faith. This is the diverse flock that Paul wants to keep together. And just to drive this point home, I want to focus on two of those names this morning. The first is in verse 1, Phoebe. And the second is all the way down in verse 22, Tertius. Or Tertius, excuse me. Phoebe, starting there, is commended to the people at Rome at the beginning of this chapter. And scholars will tell you that Phoebe was most likely the one who delivered the letter to the church at Rome. And that this would be sort of like Paul's letter of recommendation to her. Given the practice at the time, Phoebe would have been present before the letter was finalized, probably with the household of Gaius listed at the end of this chapter, and would have heard the letter read aloud then and would have been able to ask questions to get clarity on its meaning and intention from Paul himself. Phoebe would then have been the person to read Romans to the church. Our diocese and its papers on women in ministry make the point that Phoebe was called a prostatus. It's the word that's translated here as patron, or benefactor. It describes a wealthy and prominent woman who funds, supports, and leads. From this, we can gather that Phoebe was probably high class, or at least had access to funds that helped support the early church as it began to expand. She was able to travel and might have already been going to Rome for other reasons beyond that of just delivering this letter. She was trusted by Paul to deliver this letter and to clarify anything that might be misunderstood. She was an upfront woman, which is what the word prostasis actually literally means before it became, came to refer to a patron or a benefactor. The language of servant that's used here could be a reference to her being a deacon uh, as, an, as an official office of the church, or it could just be, in the general sense, serving the church that she was in. Regardless of that, she is commended to us in the church as a, uh, into the church at Rome as a person to respect listen to, and follow, and her generosity and her use of money is commended. Just as an aside here on Phoebe, Western Christianity has often spoken about biblical womanhood and focused on things like being a wife 
and being a mother. But neither of those things are mentioned in Paul's praise of Phoebe. We don't know if she was a wife or a mother. What we do know is that Paul praised her for aspects of her life that have nothing to do with that status. If our definition of what it means to be a faithful woman following after Christ does not include someone like Phoebe, we've made a mistake somewhere. The church should see motherhood and marriage as good gifts of God and should value both of them. But we should also value women who serve and lead like Phoebe, regardless of their marital status. I'll hop off that uh, soapbox now. So we have Phoebe on one side, a wealthy woman with means and leadership skills. On the other, we have Tertius. Look at verse 22. Here we see, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the name of the Lord. Besides being a little Bible trivia nugget, Tertius is the one who actually wrote Romans. This verse also carries some significance. Tertius means three. It's a practical name with little honor and was possibly the result of a very poor upbringing or even slavery. Scribe in that time was not a position of honor and those in the lowest class, even slaves, were often the ones to do the work. But Tertius is not just engaging in a a transactional job. Tertius greets the church at Rome in the Lord. That's the language that's there in verse 22. So somehow this person of poor standing is part of this community as well. In Rome, he may be in a very different world than wealthy Phoebe when it comes to class and his upbringing and his gender. But he's in the same family as Phoebe in Christ. And here, he is given at the end of his labor a chance to speak in his own voice and greet those he has been transcribing for this whole time. Phoebe, a wealthy benefactor, would deliver a letter from Paul written by Tertius. Very possibly a poor scribe. Both are saved by grace. Both are on level ground at the foot of the cross and the entrance to the empty tomb. So we need a church that keeps Phoebe and Tertius together. Not just for transactions, but for relationship. Only as we hold to the faith we received can we do this. Paul knows this, and so he says, watch out. He knows that leaders will come that will, for their own benefit, seek to tear apart the fragile ties that bind someone like Phoebe to someone like Tertius. And history has proven Paul right on this point. The capital C church has had its share of bad leaders, where a brand or a following or amassing public attention was more important than the precious family of God that, greets, that Paul greets and seeks to defend here in Rome. Bad leaders have at times led to fractions and divisions. Bad leaders have tossed aside basic Christian doctrine and watered down the faith. Pride, hubris, racism, classism have all at times infected Christ's church. I don't say this we can start throwing rocks in our mind at our favorite bad Christians from history. That's not my point. I'm saying this because I want us to heed Paul's words to watch out. There's something about our sinful condition that makes us open to divisiveness, open to a strong, charismatic leader who speaks with confidence, open to turning against those who are different from us, even if they believe like us. Paul knows we are vulnerable. 
And so for the good of our community, we should be discerning about who we are listening to and who we are following. In our modern world, this expands beyond who we listen to on Sunday morning, but includes those who give us business or financial advice, political advice, mental health advice. We should be discerning with all of it, filtering everything through the lens of Scripture, the doctrine you have been taught, as Paul says, and tests how it would impact our fellowship with Christ and with his church. If business advice somehow divides you from the family of God, is it worth the extra capital? Is a dynamic and powerful leader worth leaving the foundation of Scripture for? I think we all might say no to those questions if asked directly, but the truth is our hearts can deceive us. So this is the pastoral heart behind the book of Romans. This is the care and concern that went into this inspired text. This is Paul pointing out the wolves. And so with the rest of our time, I want to reflect on what protects us from this. What helps keep us together in the face of temptations, flattering talk, or other cultural forces? And I think in this passage, we have a few things modeled for us. The first is humility, specifically the humility of Paul. Most believe that Paul wrote this letter during his third missionary journey. So at this time, he would have probably been well known among the early church. And yet, notice the kinds of greetings he gives to the people in Rome. He uses personal and at times very intimate language. Beloved, kinsmen, fellow workers, prisoners. He even describes some as being in Christ before him and another as a mother to him. In this short section, Paul is raising up the gifts talents, and personhood of those he is greeting. He is expressing how he values them as fellow Christians and servants of Christ. We should celebrate with humility the diversity that we see all around us, creating space for, those to, for, all the, for all to use those gifts for the good of the church. This familial language of Paul is a challenge for us in a time when we are somehow more isolated than ever. It's easy to make arguments impersonal, to attack someone for faults and perceived problems without entering into a relationship and a dialogue with them. And if you don't believe me on that point, you can just go online. Even as he speaks with apostolic authority, Paul models a humility that empowers others and lifts them up. Contrast this with the attitude Paul suggests belong to those who would cause divisions. They serve their own appetites, Paul says. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Humility is a mark of Paul, and it should be a mark of our church as well. Humility means asking for help when we need it. It means trusting and relying on others at times. It means recognizing our abilities have limits. Paul needed Tertius, who needed Phoebe. That is not a sign of weakness, but strength in unity. When doctrinal or cultural storms come, a humble church is a strong church. Also drawing from Paul's greetings, what we see in this chapter is the shared mission of the church, the Great Commission. Time and time again, Paul speaks of fellow workers, fellow prisoners. We should see one another as all part of that same mission, though it plays out in different ways in our lives. Paul had a very different ministry than those he was writing to. And yet he saw all of them as having a part to play. 
We are, all of us who proclaim Jesus as Lord, participants with Christ in the redemption of all things. That mission should act as a source of unity for us, a north star for the ways we interact with each other and our larger community. There are many good things churches can be doing, but if they fall short of authentic Christian witness, whether in word or in deed, for the sake of our unity and in humility, we should ask ourselves whether it's the right thing to do. If what we are doing here isn't about following Jesus, we run the risk of falling apart. And so our shared mission protects us. And so we have humility and shared mission. And finally, what ultimately unites us is truth. We are to remain in the faith received and to not be deceived by something contrary to the doctrine taught to us. Truth is the ultimate unifier. This is unabashedly an appeal to the authority of Scripture and its careful application. It means we should read and hear Scripture read often. It means we should study it together as a church and individually. It means we should always work to maintain the heart of a learner and a disciple. Just as Paul was unashamed of the gospel of Christ, we too should be unashamed of the truth we find in Scripture. Real unity does not exist without truth. This is true of spiritual and theological concerns and of interpersonal ones as well. We should not shy away from conflict in the church. We shouldn't seek to sweep things under the rug in order to keep the veneer of peace. Our commitment to the truth should extend to a willingness to enter into that peaceful conflict and engagement for the sake of what is true, unashamed of repentance and our need for the gospel. If we're not walking in truth, we risk the unity of the church. But a church that holds on to the truth that submits to Scripture, regardless of what that might mean about our own sin or how the world sees us, will remain strong. Paul says, watch out. Divisions and obstacles come. Christ's love for us is the foundation. Holding on to that foundation looks like humility, shared mission, and truth. And now I'm tasked with another conclusion. Instead of writing my own, I thought I would just take Paul's. We won't have a benediction today because it's a deacon service, so I thought it would be good for us to listen into the doxology that wraps up the book of Romans as our conclusion today. So this is from Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but now is disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen.